Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking and today's guest is Brent Donnelly, who is a former risk taker in FX, but in many other places as well. And he now runs Spectra Markets. Brent, nice to have you here. Hi Alf, how you doing? I, uh, I've got the Macro Alf look going today a little bit now with the shorter, <laughs> shorter haircut. Well, my hair is desperately trying to grow, but there is no hair. So who am I fooling actually? Um, now back to, back to the interview. Um, there is so much going on in FX brand, which is something new. I have to say, because if I did this interview in 2017 and we wanted to talk about FX, we would fall asleep basically. But now we actually can be awake and talk about FX starting from King dollar and the fed. So shall we talk about, um, try to make fool of ourselves calling wrong the Fed for tomorrow as we are recording on the 20th of September here. Let's start sure. from there. So yeah, it's a great time to be um, interested in FX. Like you said, there have been periods like 2014, 2017 um, and others where the, you know there's just not that much of a theme and people are trying to figure out crosses like Aussie Kiwi and stuff like that. Um, the good times in FX are usually when there's a big dollar trend. Um, and obviously there is one right now. An interesting thing I find is that with the euro around 100 and uh, sterling here at around 114, which are both pretty big chart points, people have had trouble going long dollars recently because of the valuation and the, and the entry point. Mm -hmm. And I don't really think that's the right framework just because these impulsive dollar moves can just keep on going and going and going. And the drivers of the dollar move, which the main driver has been differential uh, monetary policy, especially, I mean, the most extreme example is between the US and Japan. Those drivers are still in force. Um, so I, I think that the dollar can, conti can continue. Going into the Fed, Again, I think people are doing are making the same mistake with the Fed, which is, you know, how many times have we heard peak Fed, peak inflation, um, and peak dollar. And it's just a very strong trend. And it's supported by the fundamentals. Like if you look at one thing I was looking at the last couple of days is some people have been saying inflation is, a, you know, initially, it was like, it's all commodities. Now people are saying it's all rent, um, or a lot of it's rent. But really, even if you strip out commodities and shelter, inflation is high everywhere you know it's it's the you, t you can look at atlanta sticky fed which is x shelter and its core and it's still at 5.6 percent or something like that which is about as high as we've been since the 80s um and then on the other side of the world you have uh Kuroda sun is still trying to peg yields at 25 basis points so that's like the ultimate uh divergence trade right so like in fx as you know um the big trades come from monetary policy divergence because usually higher rates attract money. So, I mean, I think we keep going. I think the Fed, you know, people are saying, well, I, I was on Bloomberg the other day and they were asking, do you think the Fed's no longer behind the curve because they're hiking in such big increments? But that ignores the levels, right? Is that they, they're running still below neutral accommodative policy and inflation's been above target for whatever, uh, 16 months. <laughs> and they're still not even in restrictive territory. Yes. So I still think there's plenty more to go for the Fed. Um, for the meeting specifically, I think that they go 75 and that the terminal rates on the high end or the, the dots show, you know, a terminal rate on the high end. So I'm, I'm thinking that it's going to be 
a somewhat hawkish sounding meeting. And that's why I, I think Dalian just keeps on going. Yeah. So uh, when we talk about the Fed uh, tomorrow, I also think they're going to do 75 basis points. So please account me for being wrong once again, uh, when, uh, when they do 100 tomorrow. Um, but as you said, the most interesting thing here is going to be well, of course, Powell's press conference and also the dot plot can signal a bit, a bit where the median expectation is from Fed members. And this terminal rate, I don't know how Powell is going to justify what he said at the last press conference that basically, you know, uh, they were a neutral and uh, hiking a bit above neutral should be enough to slow inflation. Now the dot plot is going to show probably something above 4% as the terminal rate. And that's a bit more than what he deemed to be neutral. So, um, the other thing I wanted to chat about is terms of trade, because one reason for currency divergence is definitely divergence in monetary policy. But I can make you the example of the euro, where the terminal rate is now almost at 3%, which for European standards in nominal mm. terms is incredibly high, um, or at least it has reprised since the beginning of the year very aggressively. As the dollar terminal rate has reprised, the euro also has done quite a lot in forwards. And nevertheless, the euro doesn't seem to get a, a decent bid against the dollar. So how do you incorporate the terms of trade, energy import equation when looking at effects on a medium term brand? Right. And actually, that's a good point, because that's part of the reason that people are having trouble selling euros here is um, not terms of trade, but because there's some impression that going below zero creates this nonlinear effect where people don't want to own the fixed income because it's negative carry. So now that's gone. People thought that might tr trigger a big um, you know, series of inflows into into Europe, but it hasn't really happened. And that's because of the terms of trade. So in the olden days, like say 2000 to 2008, usually the correlation was if oil went up, it was bad for the dollar because US was a net importer. Yeah. Um, and there was the whole petrodollar recycling and there was a lot of reasons why that was bad for the dollar. Now, and, and at that time, Germany ran a massive current account surplus, um, and that offset the southern deficits. Um, now, because of the energy situation with Russia, um, Europe is importing most of their energy or is trying to find ways to import energy. Um, so that current, current account surplus has disappeared. And that's just a massive change in the flows, right? So those are real flows that like we would see on the desk. So like instead of um, BMW having to buy euros because they're selling a ton of cars in China, say, um, which would be bullish euro. And, you know, we see the bids from we would um, not specifically them, but generally car makers um, in Germany would leave huge bids in euro to, yeah. to bring their euros home. Now what you see is instead the German uh, energy companies say, instead of buying oil from Russia with euros, are looking to try to buy like LNG from Qatar or, or other external sources. And all those trades are going to be happening in dollars and involve selling euros in the market. And then in the meantime, there's just always massive dollar demand from tech and pharma. So the global companies that are the, the US global companies that are selling products all over the world, they don't want all those currencies that they're getting. So everyone that's buying, you know, iPad, I was gonna say iPods, that's, that's 2000. Um, anyone that's buying iPhones in Japan is paying in yen, yeah. but Apple doesn't want yen. So then they're coming in and buying dollar yen. So you see the flows have really, really changed. And on top of all that, 
the U.S. is a, a now a net exporter of crude, which is you know unthinkable. Would it would have been unthinkable uh, probably ten years ago. So the flows are all in favor of the dollar. The rate story, like you said, is um, you know is better for Europe, um, but still the nominal rates are higher in the U.S. And um, any sort of initial desire to try to buy euros. You know, people just uh, on the on the rate normalization story, it just gets slapped back. And then there's one other problem with that is that the the ECB is trying to run monetary policy for um, the entire continent, and so there's always these flare ups when essentially what they want is rates to go up in Germany, but to stay relatively flat in Italy, for example. And you know that's a tough thing to to engineer, and so. It hasn't happened recently, but a lot of the time when ECB is trying to hike rates, it creates pressure on Italian bonds, and which is actually bearish euro because the only real buyer of those bonds has been the ECB. So private holders of those bonds get nervous and start selling BTPs, and then they sell euros. So it's very tricky because what you want in a currency is clarity, like higher sorry higher rates equals buy the currency. Yeah. And in Europe, it's just really unclear. You have the negative terms of trade. You have always Italy sort of in the background or the peripheral debt in the background. And so it just makes it really hard to buy euros. The biggest attraction for euros is just it's cheap. <laughs> but um, I mean, I've been trading FX since 1995. Trading FX on valuation is a losing strategy. It just, you know, I mean, it... Eventually, sure, it it probably tends to mean revert um, over like twenty or thirty year time frames, but like as we've seen with the Swiss franc um, or New Zealand, so Swiss franc is always perceived to be overvalued. It keeps going higher for years and years and years. Um, New Zealand dollar is another one, always perceived to be cheap. Turkish lira always is the cheapest currency in the world for the last five years. And it's gone from 10 to 18. A dollar turkey's gone from 10 to 18. Yeah. So valuation to me is completely useless. Um, an interesting point um, a Deutsche piece made last week is that the two very big dollar rallies that we had um, were, were in one in the 80s and then one in around 2000. Um, and there are many similarities between now and 2000. And both of those dollar rallies ended with intervention. So there's like a natural um, flow that's happening and that flow just keeps on coming. And those like, I use the the tech and pharma companies as an example. They, they're not looking at the levels or the valuation, right? They just have all these currencies and they don't want them and they have to buy dollars. Whether dollar ends at 102 or 179, they're just coming in and buying all their dollars, right? Because they just, they're trying to kind of translate their their revenue in somewhat real time. So valuation, you know, at the margin matters. Um, you'll see like, a, for example, where it matters would be U.S. tourists will go to Europe more this summer or, or sorry, next summer um, because it's cheaper. And that that's some flow and that creates some meaningful flow. Like in Canada, that can be a huge, a huge thing um, because there's so much cross-border activity. When Dollar Canada goes below one or goes above like 1.5, you see a complete change in the dynamics of, of cross-border shopping and travel. Um, but the further the two countries are away, the harder it is to do that, obviously. Um, and so valuation in the end, it it's sort of like this thing that you can look at. It's interesting as like uh, as an academic, 
But as a trader, it just doesn't really mean anything. The market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. So uh, I agree on valuations and effects, by the way, also by experience. I, I've experienced exactly the same, right? And also, by the way, with credit spreads, you, you can say, oh, this company looks very much undervalued from a uh, fundamental perspective. But then if there is an idiosyncratic risk or something else, or there is a trend, it's very hard to fight uh, and, and related to, to fundamentals only. I wanted to have a chat about the euro before we move to Japan, because you talked about intervention and there's been some, some chatters of the Ministry of Finance in Japan checking out the market uh, for intervention, let's say. But first, uh, a word on, on the euro, because uh, the way I look at it, basically, there has to be a release valve somewhere. So if you are now a, um, if, you, if, you, if you are in a, a, the eurozone and you have um, an external shock like energy prices going through the roof, right? And being very, very different than they were between 2010 and 2020. Uh, the, somebody has to foot the bill. That's basically the point. And it's either the private sector or the public sector or a combination of both. But first of all, let's define the bill. Looking at energy, uh, across sectors, it seems like the, the toll as percentage of GDP is going to be between 5 and 10%. It's pretty, pretty big. It's literally very big. Now, who foots the bill? To me, Brent basically signals what the release valve is going to be in the short term. So if the government decides to foot the bill as much as possible, if you ask me, as it shields the private sector, it can be kind of even positive for the currency, short term, I mean, because it allows earnings not to collapse. It allows less stress in credit markets, et cetera, et cetera. Long-term is another story and that I have a question for you. But if the government would decide to be shy about footing the bill, then the release valve will be credit spreads, defaults, uh, equity prices, uh, even the euro as, as, a, as a secondary derivative of that. So my question is, what do you make of the UK and EU announcement to basically use the public sector balance sheet to somehow shield the private sector short-term from, uh, from the bill? What's the impact short-term and long-term of this strategy? So I, I agree with you that essentially what you're doing is you have a choice, right? Is it the consumer or the, or the corporations that will take the hit or the, or the sovereign? And to me, moving it to the sovereign is bullish for the currency at the margin, but I think it's more bearish for the, for the bonds than bullish for the currency just because there's so many other things going on with the currencies, um, especially as it pertains to the dollar specifically. So I do think in this world of MMT, um, which is kind of like the orthodox policy now, people have realized that trying in, in G10, so I, what I'm going to say is relates only to G10, not to emerging markets, but in G10, trying to play sovereign credit weakness as a trade is just very, very difficult because Yes, it has mattered a few times. Like in the early 90s, Canada had a bit of a credit, sovereign credit, you know, fear trade. Um, and of course, it matters on the peripheral um, debt in, or periphery in Europe. But if you look at um, when Biden came in, all this fiscal spending was announced um, or was expected to be announced. And people started posting charts of, you know, US deficit, US balance, basic balance. Um, versus dollar and people thought it was going to be very bad for the dollar. So people sold bonds and sold dollars. But the reality is that it's a stimulus, right? So in the US, it was turbo bullish dollar because it was a true stimulus. It wasn't it wasn't just offsetting um, a, a problem. Uh, but still, you know, the UK subsidizing energy prices to me, 
moves the moves the threat away from you know deeper recession and real income shock in the UK and Europe and moves it to the sovereign where you know trading um worrying about sovereign debt just I don't know it's like one of those things it just matters when it matters and it almost never matters so uh, to me at the margin those those actions are bullish um for the currencies but the those currencies just aren't trading well because of other things but then what it really is I think in a in a world where central banks are withdrawing liquidity and you've seen this in the gilt market is it's just very bearish for fixed income because it's more issuance it's potentially like a little bit wider credit spreads for the sovereign um and it's just less reason to own bonds that are already kind yeah. of in free fall so, anyways uh, the other thing is that over the long term obviously um taking the loss on the public sector balance sheet would basically mean more deficit at the end of the day so you need to issue more bonds which basically means printing more currency so what you're doing is you're basically uh, printing new euros to subsidize for or, or, or sterling to subsidize for the higher input costs where you don't have direct control on on the short term. So long term, if you ask me, uh, on the margin, it's also bearish the currency. Short term, it's bullish. So I do agree with you. Long term, we might debate. It's obviously not very good mm. for bonds and, and the currency itself. Moving to Japan, which is the one stronghold that has so far decided, Brand, that it's not going to play this game. They're going to they're gonna pin 10-year rates at 25 basis point because they can. They have an infinite balance sheet while uh, Blue Bay Asset manage, Management or whoever went short doesn't have an infinite balance sheet. We'll need to pay carry to be short and at some point they'll, they'll throw in the towel, which is basically what has happened so far. But I want to ask you, what do you make of that? I mean, for how long do you think Japan can and will continue to do that? So to me, if you look at inflation in Japan, it is becoming a bit more of a political issue because headline is getting higher. But core is still 1.6%, which is still low. You know, they can argue it's still below target. I think it's now a little bit more also about um, not exactly saving face, but it's about Kuroda going out with his policy in force. And so Kuroda's term expires in April, and he's probably going to be gone in March. So to me, what it looks like is he's desperately trying to just hand, hand off yeah. to the next person and the next person can normalize. And Kuroda's legacy will be that he beat the Japanese deflation, right? The dollar yen was at 77 and, and inflation rates were negative, so deflation. And now dollar yen's, you know, it's doubled. It's gone from 75 to 150 almost. Um, and inflation is coming up, you know, and whether how much of that was Kuroda and Abenomics uh, can be debated. Um, but I think the pressure is building, but the, they have, like you said, unlimited balance sheet and unlimited patience. Now, the one interesting thing that's going on that, that I've never seen in, in my years is usually the Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance are on the same page. It's, just, it's usually kind of one team, right? Team Japan, they sometimes call it. And actually, now we have the opposite. We have a different situation where the MOF and uh, the finance minister are saying the yen is too weak now because the politics of the yen have completely flipped. So, um, you know, at for a very, very long time, the, the strong yen was a, was a pain in Japan and hurt hurt the, every hurt all different facets of the Japanese economy. Now, actually, the individuals in Japan on the street are getting annoyed with the weak yen. So the MOF is talking about, so like you said, they did a rate check the other day, which is kind of like 
escalating the, the risk of, of intervention. But the thing is, so if you look at any basic framework for, for FX intervention, um, and the RBNZ in New Zealand has the most clear one, the, the key to it is that monetary policy has to be aligned because otherwise you're just, you know, you're, you're spinning in the wind, essentially. What, if you're trying to strengthen your currency, but you're pegging your interest rates at 25 basis points when the U.S. is at 350 basis points, your inter, your FX intervention just won't work because it's um you know you're 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 pushing on one thing and you're pulling on the other thing, so higher, uh, I don't think intervention will do anything. Um, so first of all, will they intervene? I think it's still questionable because they know that it's not going to work very well, and usually as a central bank. Because your credibility is on the line when you intervene, you really want to have all the stars in line. So what I think they're doing is just trying to threaten intervention without actually yeah. doing it. And then there could be a huge trade, I think, next, like, say, I don't know, starting January, February, because the market will start to anticipate that Corona is leaving and that the new governor will have different priorities, um, especially with the passing of prime, or ex-Prime Minister Abe, who was the architect of the weekend. Um, the the sort of like psychology or or framework or orthodoxy of weakening the yen is not going to make any sense once Kuroda leaves. So I think that could be a really interesting trade. Um, but you know that could come from you know right now we're at one forty four. That trade could come from one fifty seven or something like that. You know I think dollar yen could still go quite a bit higher because the MOF is always going to be like yeah this is. You know, very risky to intervene because you're using up your bullets and central banks that intervene and fail lose yes. a lot of credibility. So it's a bit like, um, effectively, I really like your analysis because of the incentive schemes that have been analyzed, Brent. I mean, you're talking about Kuroda going out, the political um, angle of intervening in the yen market as well and failing to regain credibility, which is the thing that policymakers care, care the most about, right? It's to make sure that when they intervene or when they say they're going mm. to intervene, the market respects them. Otherwise, they've, uh, they've, they're losing a very important battle. Um, right. They sort of lose control of one of the levers if that happens. And you saw that with the Swiss National Bank. Um, and in contrast, actually, the BOJ has been pretty good. Their track record is pretty good. I mean, they were buying Dalian at 100 they're buying Dalian at 76, um, and now we're at 143. So, you know, they've had some mark to market in there, but um, but overall, generally, and also they sold in 1998 around here, around 145. So overall, their le their levels of buying and selling have been good. Yeah, also, it, it really requires monetary policy to collaborate because obviously the, the, the intervening is a bit like um, saying in Europe that energy prices will be capped. It's a short-term way of intervening, but if you don't have a long-term fix for your energy imports, if you don't have, in the Japanese example, a long-term fix for uh, attracting capital uh, at home in Japan, which means basically having risk-free real yields being higher than mm -hmm. they are today, you won't have capital being uh, you know, stable in Japan and you need to fix that first. So you need a collaboration, right? right. Which makes me think as well that if they go that way, uh, I think the bond market as always is going to try and, and, and overprice or push the BOJ mm. uh, boundaries there. I mean, 
they can say, look, we're going to move the, from 25 basis point to 50 basis point, but I don't think they're going to just crop any yield curve control at all, any cap at all. Yeah. But interestingly, I think markets are going to try and test whether the next level is going to come in play. So that can be an interesting trade. Mm. The problem is, as always, you need to see what's priced in already. So how much carry basically you're, you're giving away to enter the short JGB trade, which has been a killer this year for anybody who tried, right? Right. It's kind of like being short tether. Like it makes sense on so many levels, but it's an expensive <laughs> trade to do and you have yeah. to time it right. And I mean, as you know, people have been trying to short JGBs for, I would say off and on for 20 years. Like it's called the Widowmaker for a reason. Um, yeah. And I mean, eventually it will work, right? But, um, but like you said, you could lose so much on the carry in the meantime that if you don't time it well, um, then, then you end up being right and still losing money. Yeah, pretty much. Brent, thanks for uh, the interview. It's always nice to talk effects and markets with you. Um, if people want to find more about your work, where can they do that? Sure. Uh, the easiest way is just to go to spectramarkets.com. And, uh, that's where my daily, which is AMFX and everything else is on the website. Guys, I, uh, read Brent every day, exceptional content. Please do the same. You're, you're doing a. Uh, how can I say, a disservice to yourself if you're not doing that already. Brent, thanks Thank you, for man. being here and uh, we'll chat soon. Awesome. Thanks, Alf.